You're listening to Novel Bound, a podcast dedicated to making you laugh and keeping you company. Each week, we're sharing all of our favorite books and the embarrassing side of life. Welcome back to Novel Bound. I'm Anna. I'm Celine. And today we have a special guest, the Adrian Young, back again to talk about her new book, The Last Legacy. Say hi. Hi. Thanks for having me again, guys. We love you. Uh, we are so excited. So yeah, just to preface, we interviewed her like a couple months ago about the Fable and Namesake series. So if you haven't listened to that, go listen to that first so that you can like get to know her like we know her and love on her. Yes. And then come back and just also know that this episode is completely spoiler filled. Like you have to have read The Last Legacy to listen to this. And you don't have to have, but it would make a lot of sense for you to read it. Also, I feel like how often do you get to have, like when you read a piece of writing, to be able to hear an author just like discuss all the things that they were passionate about and that inspired them. Yeah. So that's what we love to do is like, we only have authors on to just spoil the heck out of their books and just discuss yeah, we do. what really inspired them because I mean, that's why you do it. So we're so excited to have Adrian just <laughs> tell us everything, tell us everything, Adrian. <laughs> all the details, all the dirty secrets. <laughs> so fun. But yeah, so how are you doing? How's every, this year has been pretty wild. Like you've published multiple books. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing really well. I have had a really fun big year um, mm-hmm. as far as my career goes. And I am very grateful for all of it, but I'm also very tired <laughs> and very oh, yeah. ready um, for a rest. And so I kind of am, you know, coming in on my last deadline of the year and, um, yeah, so I'm just kind of like eye on the prize trying to get through to the end of the year and super excited about next year too. Yeah. And if you're one of our listeners, like, I think it's a huge feat for an author to write one book a year. Like that's amazing and incredible to launch a book and all that work that goes through it. She Mm -hmm. has worked on three books this year and also not only that, but she's giving back to her community by doing writing with the soul. Um, She has a waiting list that's full. I just joined it because I want Mm -hmm. to learn from her, but like, not only is she just pouring her soul in these books, but she's pouring her soul into the community. And I just, am like, dang girl, no wonder why you're tired. Let's go. Like, get it. (laughs) We love that. Yeah. Okay. Working hard. Go Anna. Yeah. Should we start with the questions? All right. First question, the most obvious one that everyone wants to know. So yeah. why the story with Ezra and the Roth? Like what gave you the inspiration to behind it to go deeper into that story? And yeah. So the Roths are, I have been very, very intrigued with the Roths since I was drafting the uh, Fable. So mm-hmm. in Fable, which this is also a spoiler for Fable, but mm-hmm. um, there is a scene where her ability with the gems she's a gem sage and she kind of has this you know unique talent to sense and almost kind of like hear um gemstones and minerals and things like that and so there is a scene where that is kind of exposed and she spots some emerald fakes that west and the crew are about to buy and when she spots them she tips him off on what she is and when I was writing that scene, I 
was very intrigued by the idea of the gem fakes because this world runs, the whole economy runs really on the gemstone trade. It's like the foundation of um, the economy there. And so when I ran across these fakes in the scene, I was like, wait a minute, like who makes these fakes and where did they come from? And how do they get from one place to another? And what kind of role does it play in the grander scheme of the world? And so that was kind of like cooking in the back of my mind. And by the time I was finished writing Fable, I felt like I had answered some of those questions. And I was very inspired by this idea of kind of like this organized crime family being the one to produce these gemstones. And if they were, how would that work? Like, how do they make them? And, you know, what is the history of this family? Where do they live? And all of that. And I, I also loved the contrast between like the seafaring traders and then the idea of these like land on land, like people who are like playing a huge role in the maritime trade. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, you know, I wanted to write this book. I was super inspired and I went to my publisher and we, I had just turned in namesake like by, by the time I was done with namesake, I was convinced I wanted to write this book. And so I went to my publisher and I was like, Hey, I really want to write this other story in this world. Can I please write it? And they were like, uh, hold on, you know, <laughs> like fable hasn't even come out yet. And you know, they have to yeah. do things in a way that are strategic and that are going to make money. And if they're going to pay me money. So they were like, let's <laughs> see how fable does. And you know, whatever. And so I was super bummed because I was like, oh man, this isn't going to happen. And then when Fable came out and um, the readership really started responding to it, I immediately went back to my publisher and I was like, hey, so remember that one book that I wanted to write? And at that time I had already sold another couple books, my next duology. And we were able to kind of like talk through the opportunity and they were like, yeah, let's do it. Let's, you know, go for it. And so I finally was able to like pause what I was doing and then just totally hit the gas on the story about the Roths. And Ezra is introduced toward the end of namesake. And so I kind of already had an idea about his character mm -hmm. and kind of the personalities at play in the family. And so I finally just kind of got let loose and wrote the book like in a fever. It was like very, I was so happy to be working on it that I just hit the ground running and wrote it really fast. And we were able to get it out um, just six months after namesake. Oh my gosh. Insane. Well, we're glad that you were able to do that too. I love that. Um, I don't even care if you spend a lot of time on this question. Like, you don't, this is like my, this is the one where I was like, if there's any question I want to just like spend time on, it's this one. Um, there's a magnetic energy about the Roths. You know what I mean? Um, you're like, yes, I do know what I mean. I wrote them. Everything yeah. is magnetic, but the dynamics of the Roths are just so interesting. And especially like Henrik, like he is, I don't know if I love him or I'm terrified of him, probably both. Um, but these characters have like so much love for family, but they're also like not afraid to like hurt each other in ways that, you know what I mean? Um, one of the biggest things that impacted me was like when it was like, well, you're about to go get married to this guy. I don't care. 
you know what I mean? It's just like the ultimate betrayal. I'd just love to hear like your thoughts on Henrique. Like he's a complicated character. He's got emotional and physical abuse. And it's also just hard to detect like, is he ever going to be someone to trust and love? And you know how Ezra even explained that the crew could have gotten like a worse punishment. Like this whole dynamic in the family and the characters, like what makes them work? Why they stick around? Like, I'm sure you had to explore all these things. I just love to hear you just discuss. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the thing I love about the Roths. Um, It's the thing, I mean, I feel like I have characters in my books. I mean, especially in this world, I feel like there are a few characters like this. A saint, I think would fall into this care, this category as well. He's Mm -hmm. very different from Henrik, but um, there is, a duality to these characters that I am just addicted to. I love writing gray characters, really complex, contradictory kind of characters where you can't really pin them down and you can't really decide if you love them or if you hate them. And um, the Roths are so interesting because they do unforgivable things, like really unforgivable things. Yeah. <laughs> in the name of family um but they all family is everything to them and so like even there's um the novella that I wrote called Tides that's kind of Paj and Oster's origin story which isn't hasn't been make, made um available to the public yet but um my newsletter subscribers got it as like a special gift mm-hmm. um even in this I won't I won't spoil that for anybody who wants to read it in the future um because there will be an opportunity to get for everybody mm-hmm. it. but um there is a point in that story as well Henrik is in that um story and he, somebody in the family gets in trouble and when he shows up I think I as the writer and maybe even the reader is expecting him to rip that character a new one and like oh no here he comes and instead when he shows up he doesn't even have his jacket on he's literally wow just come from the workshop where he heard that this character was in trouble and he walked away from what he was doing to to go to him and to be there you know and yeah the character kind of reflects on it about like how he, and the whole reason he's in this mess is because of Henrik, but Henrik is the first one to drop what he's doing and mm-hmm. save him, you know? And so there's the, I feel like it's such a perfect picture of Henrik. And I wrote that before I wrote The Last Legacy. And so I kept kind of coming back to that moment when I was writing this book and, you know, asking the question, like, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? I don't think there's really a clear answer because Mm -hmm. I do really love Henrik. I love all of the Roths. Um, I think they have a very, very deep love for each other, but they also have a very twisted view of the world and, um, and, and love in general and what family means and, all of that. And Ezra has a line in The Last Legacy when he's talking to Bryn where he's like, look, family means something different to these people, you know, than what, than what you think it means. Yeah. And it's like a warning. Um, but he just is, yeah, Henrik and like all of the Roths, they just, 
they behave in ways that we would not understand, you know? Um, but there really is this like undercurrent of love behind everything they do. Mm-hmm. Well, they feel so real. Like when I was reading them, I was like, they just feel like such real people, the emotions you gave them and the things that they were doing. Cause not like a lot of times in series, like I, you would have Henry be, you know, well, he's the, he's the big bad. He's going to push Bryn to do all these things that she needs to do. And he's going to be the big bad. But like, I could never look at him as like the only big bad because of that undercurrent of love. So just, wow. Love them. Or yeah. do I hate them? I know. I love them too. I really love them all. Okay. So I also love Sylvie's character. Um, and I just would love to like, to have you tell us a little bit more about her because she seems like such a no-nonsense woman and she's kind of seems like really the only one in the house to kind of like give attitude and not be like punished for it and so I just would love to know like her origin story or like the inspiration behind the heart that's kind yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvie is she's really funny she's kind of like the mother hen of the rocks mm-hmm. um, she's not a part of the family but she's kind of like runs their house and um cooks and you know all of that and I think she has known um especially like Henrik and the brothers uh Noel and uh Casimir she's known them Mm -hmm. since they were young and so okay in my mind she like probably used to wipe their butts type thing (laughs) (laughs) and kiss their boo-boos and stuff like that Uh I feel like she's this character that kind of she is probably one of the only people who's not blood related to the rocks who understands them like Mm -hmm. understands them and there's got to be a mutual trust there because they don't even like let people inside their house who are not like part of the business and stuff and Mm -hmm. so um, I feel like they trust her. She trusts them, but she also is kind of the voice of reason in things. Um, but she also doesn't bat an eye at their cruelty, you know, yeah. if stuff goes down. It's not like she's there trying to stick up for people or trying to defend people. She's just there to like clean up the blood, you know, on the ground mm-hmm. afterward. And so, <laughs> yeah, so she is like, um she's a really interesting character and she kind of will put them in their place a little bit but it's about things like what they ate for breakfast not necessarily about you know their business strategy or whatever yeah he was kind of this fun background character that um that I feel like just added this oh a little bit of an outside perspective on the Roths but also like put them in context a little bit yeah humanize them a little Mm -hmm. she definitely did I was literally about to be like she humanizes them like because yeah. it's almost like a miniature save the cat kind of in terms of like she has that she helps them be more human and stuff like that and it's I love that you know you brought up with tides like there is this humanistic there's this human like heart and soul to them that you can't deny there they have that there and that's just so powerful um I just love to hear you talk a little bit um one of the things that like I've always admired about your books is your ability to really create perfect like imagery and settings. Like when we are like whenever I'm reading oh my gosh. Book, I always feel like I'm like physically in the house or I'm in the water, you know. Um I always knew like where Bryn was at all times and my favorite, I loved seeing the tea house and getting to learn that and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. When you were writing those kinds of things, I'd love to hear more of your craft. And like I know that's something Kristen was um I was talking to her and she was like 
I always just want to know what everybody's feeling. <laughs> like you want to know where they are. And I just feel like when you look at writing a story and stuff like that, I'd love to just hear about you talk about your craft. Yeah, that's so funny. Kristen is um, my critique partner. And for those who don't know, and <laughs> she is, when she reads for me, a lot of times she's like, okay, what are they feeling here? What it, what's she feeling here? You know, because it's true that every um, reader is kind of looking for something different from a story. But one thing I do hear a lot um, in feedback about my work is that um, people feel like they're there. You know, there's a, there's a sense of place and that they feel like they're there on the water or under the water or um, on the battlefield and all of that. And I, I've had to really think about what tactics I'm using to make that happen because I don't feel like I was totally doing it consciously at first. Like I wasn't totally, it's not like I was like sitting down and trying to do that. But then once I recognize, like I realize it's a strength of mine, then of course now I try to like be aware of it and be good at it and all of that. So, um, you know, I think that details are so important. Uh, the surroundings, your details are incredibly important, but where readers and writers, I think get lost a lot of times is in giving too many details. Mm -hmm. So either, either the writer has chosen the wrong details to share, like things that someone can't like grab a hold of and remember, um, or they share so many details that the reader starts skimming because they just want to get to the action or the dialogue. So, and I mean, I do, I'm guilty of this as a reader all the time. If there's too many, too much description, um, even if it's emotional description, I will find my eyes skipping ahead because I want to know what's happening next. And so um, I think find striking a balance there, like I'm going to give these few concrete details that have strong imagery and the reader will remember them. Like they're, they're specific enough for the reader to remember and create like an atmosphere. And then once I've like shared those, letting them fill in the blanks of the rest, because you also have to let your reader imagine it. And when you get bogged down in all of the details of the description, like every single piece of furniture that's in the room, what color everything is, that's when you start bogging, bogging them down and the pacing of the scene starts getting really mm. slow and like just clunky so I feel like that's I've kind of analyzed it down to that like maybe that really is my approach and now like I can see when I'm doing it but it's something that also happens in revisions you know like I have to go back in with the scissors Mm -hmm. and either add or cut things um as I'm finalizing a passage because I don't do it perfectly, you know, on the first pass or anything, but, um, but that's what I, I try to keep in mind now when I'm building out a scene and a setting. Yeah. That is so smart. You really have the formula because I feel like I could picture the moment when she found her mom's tea shop. She didn't know like at that time that it was her mom's tea shop, but I'm like the whole, I'm like on the street with the stones and the like boarded up building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I'm just really impressed and like blown away at how you were able to write that. Just emotionally hit this entire podcast. I'm so sorry. (laughs) We cannot hold back. It's who we are. (laughs) 
Okay, go, Anna. Sorry. I'm like, hi, I love you. Go. (laughs) So one of the things that I always admired is the way that you create these strong heroines. Um, And something I noticed was that in Sky in the Deep, you had this like strong warrior girl who is all sharp edges and and slightly softens into the stronger girl. And then you have Bran who came from a softer life who then has to come into her own and embraces the rough side of herself. Uh, And I just love this angle. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like the different aspects of these girls. They're like parallels and kind of foils to each other. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And I, I haven't really thought of them that way. Um, But yeah, you're totally right. I think that I feel like all of the main characters I've written thus far, they are all kind of different. Like they all have this like scrappiness to them, you know, and this like ability to survive. But they're diff- they're different like personalities and stuff and have different traits um that they don't necessarily share and so I, and honestly I, I my main characters really do a lot of times reflect myself like where I'm at when I'm writing the book okay. and, like when I was writing Sky in the Deep I was super I was like in the middle of a huge life transition and like personal kind of inner transformation and I was kind of pissed like I I really was just like angry in my heart about a lot of things and I feel like a lot of it came out in Eland <laughs> where uh-huh. dang girl she has so much anger you know and people yeah. people say that all the time like in reviews or whatever like when people are talking to me about Sky in the Deep they're like Elan's so angry mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah she is angry like and I have been there. I've been so angry about things. And so I feel like her journey really did kind of reflect what I was going through at the time. And with Bryn, it's kind of the same, same deal where I'm not in the middle of some like big personal crisis or anything that like is reflected in Bryn, but, um, she kind of is like this other aspect, I think of my own journey where, um, you know, just like, I think everybody goes through this. Hopefully everybody goes through this, but just the owning, like owning who you really are and like taking control of your own destiny. And like when others have tried to control it for you and all of those things. And so I think like there's strength in both of those personalities and both of those stories. And, you know, we kind of came into this big YA, um, you know, fierce female main character trend. We love to see it. And I love it. Like, I'm so here for that. Um, But it's also not the only kind of strength. And so, and I think, you know, the reason it was such a big deal when it first became a trend is that there wasn't a lot of female Mm -hmm. characters depicted like that. And so it felt so fresh and great to have these characters who are female characters but they're not necessarily prim and proper girls in ball gowns and whatever. Um, and now I feel like the playing field has evened out a little bit. Too. Yeah. There's a lot more different kinds of girls depicted in fiction than there were even 10 years ago. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's kind of like this never ending lexicon of female characters because like no two women are the same you know and I I think that as I continue to write female main main characters I think that will be continue to be true where 
you know, they'll share some traits. They'll really differ in some traits. Their journeys hopefully will all be unique to who they are. Um, but I, I have, I found Bryn refreshing to write for myself just because I hadn't ever written a female character who was like brought up in high society mm-hmm. and was like trying to behave and all of those things. And so it, it was, it was fun, I guess, um, felt new for me. So fun. And I think like, I'll go ahead, Anna. Oh, sorry. No, I was saying, I love that. Like, as time goes on, we get all these amazing female led characters with different types. Cause I love a girl who could kill a man in a ball gown. Mm -hmm. Like, mm, give me all of that. Give me that trope. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's super cool. And also like, I'm really grateful for the fact that like um, growing up in like television and TV and books, like I always feel like Nancy Drew was like my OG like heroine when I was growing up and like seeing her do all these things and being capable. I mean, that kind of energy and growing up, like that's why I own the businesses that I do and I'm going through is because like I'm being constantly shown and taught that women can. And Mm -hmm it's cool because like it doesn't matter where you came from or what you look like or anything like you have a story that's unique and that needs to be told and I just really liked that in all of your books there's such a parallel of and I loved what you said where it was like they have different types of strength and you don't have to be outgoing or you know extroverted and you don't have to be super tough you know you can your who you are and your personality is what's beautiful and what's strong and I just I love that I think that's really cool yeah yeah, I think it's very, very true. It's mm-hmm. I mean, I I think what feels real in books is what reflects yeah reality, and that's reality. You know, like for so long we had so many female characters who did not really represent a vast majority of women, and so um, I think that readers are getting to connect with female characters like themselves, like much more commonly now than maybe they used to. Yeah. Way to go. I'm excited for my that. daughter to read my book someday, like, and be able to be like, okay, so like, see this kind of thing. It's gonna be cool. Um, my question is about Murrow. I love him. Mm-hmm. Yes, Murrow. How's he doing? You don't have to like tell us like anything that you can't reveal, but like, is he okay? Because we kind of <laughs> left him on that island and we're like, bye. So I'm like, is he good? Is he yeah. okay? Man, Murrow, I love Murrow. I really love him. Um, he pops up at the end of namesake that's where we first meet him and then we get to know him a little bit more in tides um and then we really get to know him in the last legacy and man i love him i feel like murrow he is a raw through and through and it's like he can see he can see things clearly, but he also knows his destiny is to be a Roth. Like, I think, I think he wants that destiny, you know? Um, I don't think it's like with Bryn or like with Oster having left the Roths. I don't think it's this thing where they feel stuck and they feel controlled and all, you know, and they're looking for a way out. Murrow is not looking for a way out. He is like, this is, this is me. This is who I am. And I'm going to die here type thing. And, um, he's definitely more soft hearted than maybe his dad or his uncles. Um, but, and he's got like this sense of humor. He's cheeky, he's charming. Mm -hmm. And like, I just love his personality. Um, and he has a soft spot for Bren 
but he also is not going to go against the family. And yeah. so I just felt like it was cool to see him emerge and take shape in contrast to Bryn. Um, and again, another example of how like maybe these aren't the bad guys or maybe oh, they yeah. necessarily wrong or whatever, but the, it's not that simple, you know? Um, and there's like a heritage here that has some value to it, to at least some members of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, love I want, him. I want so bad for Murrow to like help Henrik and like bring up the name of the Ross. Cause I'm like, Murrow can do it. If anyone can do it, it can be Murrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he is like, he, I think he's a really special character mm-hmm. and he w- he came to me he was the first uh, character that really came to me in the last legacy um like before Ezra before Bryn before Henrik he was wow he really like I knew Henrik existed but Murrow was the character that really I feel like introduced me to their world mm-hmm. so um I do have a soft spot for him but uh as far as like, where is he now? I mean, I think he's still there in the yeah. house, in the, in the, at the end of the alley with the Roths, you know, and he's carrying on and doing the work and taking, you know, doing his part for the family mm-hmm. for sure. Thank you for the closure. Yeah, we appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, to be fair, like Bran did leave them in good hands. Like she kind of got it all set up being like, hey, mm-hmm. like I did everything I could. It's up yeah. to you now. So like, yeah. They can, they're going to be okay. I mean, I don't know if there's going to be like another book. I really want there to be because I'm like, oh, oh what's going to happen next? But so, <laughs> it's so sore. So like, I'm sure no one picked up like that. <laughs> but um, that's super cool. Okay. So I was really intrigued by Ezra's relationship with Cohen because they kind of had this opportunity to have almost a brotherly relationship, but then Cohen really sold Ezra out. I mean, and you find out that Ezra knew basically the whole time. And so it was this huge pivotal moment when Cohen helped Bryn and, you know, Ezra out. And so I would just love to know more behind the relationship of that. And if that's the last we'll see of Cohen, because he kind of seemed like he could be on that upward, you know, like journey from his father and the Roth kind of. I'm just really about the drama I'm like oh no like what happened before like give us the tea <laughs> yeah so Cohen is another really interesting character um he was a surprise to me in this book I was not planning on any kind of storyline mm-hmm. that involved him or Simon I didn't really know what the storylines were going to be because I'm a discovery writer and so I knew I knew the opening and then when Cohen came into play, I was like very intrigued by him. Um, and his background with Ezra is super interesting because his father took Ezra on in his workshop as a watchmaker because he saw that Ezra was super talented as a silversmith from a young age. And Cohen was not super talented. So even though he's going to take over his father's um, business and hopefully inherit his merchant's ring and all of those things, um, Ezra really was the golden boy in Simon's eyes. And I think Cohen felt threatened by that and grieved because Cohen really does love his father, like really loves him, really respects him, wants to be him, you know? And so I think that he felt super threatened by Ezra and thought Ezra needed to go. 
you know, <laughs> like, I think we need to get rid of this um, better version of a son who's sitting over here making me look bad all the time. Right. He's like, mm. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I feel like, you know, whether it was brewing for a long time or whether it was something that kind of just like popped up in his mind in the moment. I have no idea, but he um, decides to betray Ezra and basically gets him sold to Henrik. And he's like, great, now I'm rid of, <laughs> rid of this kid. But in doing so, he starts a war between Henrik and Simon. I don't think he had any idea he was doing that, but it has ripple effects for a very long time after that come into play in this book. So their dynamic is super interesting to me. Um, and I think it also plays into Ezra's feelings of not belonging anywhere and like yeah. um, being used by everyone. And, and also, you know, Bryn, when she learns what happened, she assumes that Ezra does not know this, um, doesn't know the truth about what Cohen did. And then we find out at the end of the book that really Ezra's, Ezra's always known, you know? So, um, yeah, I feel like the way it all played out was a surprise to me as the writer and, and was like so fun to discover as I was writing. Um, but now I imagine there is quite a rift between Simon and Cohen because at the end of the book, he had to betray his dad in order to save him type thing. And so now there's no really, there's no way for him to get around Simon finding out what he did. Yep. So now, now I'm like, oh man, things are not in a good place. For- <laughs> You're like, bye guys. See you later. End of book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That helped actually a lot with like just painting that picture and kind of knowing more about that. Um, and I have like one more big question. And then after that, like, we'll just kind of like, end with like a little like teaser or whatever for whatever you can say. But, um, I just, one of my favorite scenes, and I think like the thing that I'm going to like always remember when I read, when I think of this book is how Bryn's tea shop was like an ode to her mother and the life that she could have lived. I think learning that like what happened, like what her mother could have had, like for example, she and Simon, like that whole stuff and being able to have the tea shop. um, I'd love to know more about what you imagined for her mother's backstory and what those emotions were like when you were writing it. Mm. Um, yeah, so the deal with her mom is really, it's so, you know, in Fable, we have like, she, she knew her mom and she was really close to her mom and then she lost her and she grieved her. She's still grieving her. Bryn doesn't remember her mom and she's only been told stories about her. And I think she struggles to even feel connected with her mom's legacy and what role she's supposed to be playing. And, um, it's kind of just been this like lingering thing in her identity that I don't even think that she really gets closure on in the last legacy. It's kind of just this like nebulous thing. And so um, it is kind of in there's, there is more to the backstory of the Roths and the siblings, um, Henrik, Eden, and all of that. Uh, Henrik cared a lot about Eden was very close to her before she died. And so I also think that that influences his relationship with Bryn and how he treats her and how he feels about her. 
Um, so there's kind of like all these pieces where Eden is influencing a lot of the dynamic, but she's not there and she hasn't been there in a long time. Wow. And when Bryn steps into this role with the tea house that her mother left behind, um, I think Bryn is trying to step into her mother's shoes, but it's only confirming that she doesn't belong there, you know? And so it's like, she's the whole book is Bryn kind of coming to terms with, I am a Roth, but I'm also not a Roth. And she's like claiming that as an identity, a piece of her identity, but she's also having to really examine the parts of her that don't fit into this mold. And I don't even know that the family is expecting her to be exactly like Eden or do exactly what Eden did. But, um, I think those are all questions that Bryn has when she comes onto the scene. So, um, so yeah, I think it's like, it's pretty murky, I think when it comes to her mom and it's definitely a different type of thing than we saw with like Fable and her mom. Yeah. It's almost like that tea shop was her last legacy or whatever. Get it? No big deal. Just <laughs> I think her last legacy or something. I don't know. I don't know if I'd pick that up. Yeah, I'm waiting to say that one. <laughs> the tea house, I think, like it's also, it's almost like Bryn paying homage to her mom too. You know, like she's kind of like finishing what her mother started. She's speculating about maybe what her mother's wishes for the family were, um, which she has no real way of knowing or getting confirmation on that. But I think it's also the thing that kind of gives her the strength and courage by the end of the book to choose her own path, um, which I think is what her mom was trying to do in her own way yeah. as well. Okay, so the favorite world and the Roth world are so amazing and we love them so much. I, I know the answer to this probably, but is there anything you can say about the expansion of it? Or is there just any scenes that you just particularly loved in this book writing so much that you would just like to talk more about you can scream about it with you like you just <laughs> oh, we'll just um yeah I can't say anything about plans for continuation there I mean this world is not dead to me and I honestly don't know if it will ever be I really it's the first time as a writer that I have felt like I could just stay in this world forever I could write so many stories. I could meet so many new people and explore so many different corners of each city. You know, like I, I just love it so much. Um, it feels like there's so much potential and opportunity there. Um, but it's also a business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Publishing is a business. And, um, we don't always get to, it doesn't always work out. Stars don't always align to do exactly how we envision things. So, um, there are some really fun announcements coming, um, and there's potential for other exciting things. And it's just a matter of how many stars are going to align, how many things are going to click. I don't know yet, but I'm crossing my fingers with everybody else. I really am. Well, we are too. And I'm like, we will keep our eyes peeled for literally <laughs> any announcement, anything that you come out with. We'll write really, really 
strongly worded positive letters to your publisher just be like <laughs> just want to let you know here's a hundred just gonna slip it in that envelope just like make it whatever needs to happen here's my detailed paper on why you should please continue to expand this world here's my five paragraph <laughs> thesis based off of like how we need to continue on this yeah it's a really interesting time and in the market right now because YA publishing has changed a lot and the sales patterns have changed a lot. And, you know, whereas in the era of Twilight or um, Cassandra Clare or, um, I mean, it's still her era, but you know what I'm saying? Like her Mm -hmm. taking off or um, even like just so many things like that, Hunger Games, Divergent, like there was just, readers really embraced series yeah and yeah waiting a year for each book they were still there waiting at the end of that year yeah. you know and now the market is so much more this is a total like publishing side talk but I'm fascinated but, by it, honestly so equivalently but the landscape has changed a lot and readers the market is so much more saturated now there are more books coming out every month in YA than ever before and readers have a lot to choose from. They also have a lot of distractions because between waiting for book one and book two of something, they have picked up a billion other series. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, it's just not what it used to be in regards to series. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot more standalones and duologies because they have much more promising prospects than a series of three plus books. Yeah. Um, so there's like this whole side of publishing where it's like, do you keep going in the world you love, yeah. the story you love, and, um, you know, be subject to the actual sales patterns that are happening right now? 100%. Or do you just jump off the cliff and like... <laughs> hope you hit water at the bottom you know it's just like it's it's so it's very complex right now and so I think I'm asking questions that a lot of authors are asking right now where we're trying to figure out what is the market doing and then when you sell a book the book doesn't come out for 18 months or two years two and a half years after so you really are taking a lot of gambles and I think that's why also you see a lot of authors like keeping secret they're being made to keep secret mm-hmm. yeah it's not clear what the future of stuff is and all of that and it's because everybody is just shooting in the dark in my opinion right now um and it's hard to know you know where things are headed so i mean the the for sure thing is that i'm not going to stop writing books and but the question is what what timing is mm-hmm. best for certain projects and I don't know yet so I love that I have a question for you my last mm-hmm. question so like you're a mother of multiple children mm-hmm. you are writing and mentoring and doing all these things you're dealing with all these publishing things there's so much how do you love it so much like how do you stay motivated to continue to write I just love would love to hear your why your big why um I've actually, I've been grappling with this a lot in the past few months because (laughs) I really have, I'm like more than ever before, because not just because it's been such a big year and it's demanded a lot, but Mm -hmm. I have had to really 
try to come to terms with um, the whole I am, like writing is who I am. Like my storytelling is who I am. And on the one hand, that sounds so unhealthy to me because I'm like, you have to be able to separate yourself from your work. You have to be able to walk away. You have to be able to create boundaries. Like these are all things we know and understand, right? Also, I think when you can't separate yourself from your work, you are subject to a lot of pain (laughs) and disappointment over things that are out of your control. So on the one hand, if I'm like, writing is who I am, that can be a very toxic thing, you know, and not exactly healthy Yeah, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But on the other hand, I can't really get away from the fact that that is true because I do have all these other, all these other things that are who I am. Like writing isn't the only thing that I am. Mm-hmm. But it's been a part of me for my entire life. And I don't know who I am without it, really. So it feels so intrinsically tied to my personhood. But that has a lot of downfalls. And so it's kind of like the big question I've been asking myself is like, is it okay to love writing this much? Because when you're just writing at home and you're not published yet and you are, you know, working on a project that you're passionate about and you're like stealing away moments to work on it and all of this stuff, that is such a different experience than Mm -hmm. being caught up in the industry and being subject to sales reports and lists and awards and starred reviews and all the other things or you know, did Target pick up your book and how's it doing at this retailer? Yeah. Have you sold foreign rights and all these things? It's just like the actual goalposts are never ending and they're very, very unquantifiable and unreliable. So it's like, I want to be able to say like, writing is not who I am. It's what I do. And I love what I do. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) Yeah. I just really don't know. I think it means something too, that you can just like, you have that perspective on it all. Oh, I can completely understand that. That's like been like a big journey of mine personally is like, what I do is I'm a photographer and it's been like, I'm the sole provider for my family. So like I shoot weddings and like when I first got started, all I wanted to do was be a photographer. And now that I've settled, I've accomplished all of those goals And like, I'm doing it. I'm like, oh my gosh, well, how do I, it's more of a business now rather than like this. And so trying to find like why my why and stuff like that. And, um, I just think it's really like, it's so relatable to hear you talk about this and just being like, this is how you're, you're doing it, you know? And it's just, it's been so awesome. Like hearing you share your thoughts and feelings and stuff like that, because we really are grateful. Like people like you, Mm -hmm. the reason why, you know, people like us like learn from things so thank you for that we really appreciate it yeah yeah I think maybe like the best answer is like trying to really get in touch with that okay this is who I am but it's not everything I am like because I think that balance can go like this Mm -hmm. where it starts becoming like I start noticing I care way too much about things I shouldn't care about 
or like if something doesn't go my way or something falls out of my control or there's a big disappointment and it crushes me then I'm like okay I need to come back to here like Mm -hmm. in the middle spot where it's who I am but it's not everything I am and I still have all these other things that make me who I am so it's it is a very delicate balance I think it's constantly shifting and I I mean, I would wager that a lot of creatives probably feel this even subconsciously. Yes. 100%. Yeah. So it's not an easy thing. It's, it's not yeah. all sunshine and roses over here. No, but that's <laughs> like, the good but... well, I like, I just met up with uh, Stephanie Garver and like, you know, I was talking to her and I'm like, I'm like jealously sitting on the sidelines in the other state. Shut up, Anna. It's fine. <laughs> here in a couple of weeks, it'll be cool. <laughs> but no, but no, like hearing you share the story, one of the things that when, oh no, I'm going to drop it again. When you and I were eating dinner together, you know, casual, sorry, Anna's just sitting here. Like, in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> but you were like, I'm going to fly out to Stephanie's thing. And I just remember, like, I asked her, I was like, was it just so good having your people like there? And she was like, yeah. And the, what you said was like, it's like when someone has a baby, like you want to be there, you want to celebrate them. Mm-hmm. Like that was why, like having those people fill my house and like hearing them. It's like, that's, those are like the moments that she's like, this is why we're, we're all here together. And I'm like, that community is untouchable. It's, it sounds amazing. Like just being on the outside, I'm like, I'm so glad you guys have each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what, like, that's my sanity is having people in my life who understand that just because I feel like this job is really hard sometimes doesn't oh. mean I'm not grateful for it. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. I don't have it. It doesn't mean, you know, I think like when you're not yes. in that world and you don't understand all of the pressures yeah. and the failures and the things that nobody sees on the outside, like, readers don't see that stuff on my Instagram um like having somebody that I can text crying about something and be totally validated and like and to have like fellow authors be like whose tires do I need to slash you know like I get let's break it down like it's just something that it to me (laughs) that is just invaluable and has been like my saving grace for sure because it's really, it is really hard. It's, it's not, it's not easy. So. Well, we're proud of you and we're grateful. Yeah, and we're thankful for you. Yeah. Thank you. Being real like this, like, it's so amazing mm-hmm. to think like someone, cause like you say failures and I'm just like, you're here, you're alive. Like you're doing this. Look at all these things you're doing, but I know like how hard that can be. It's mm-hmm. so funny. I'm like sitting here, I'm like, oh, parallel in, in my life. Yeah. Like, I'm this girl. Yep. Thank you so much. <sighs> Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for having me again. We love it. Yeah, oh, we love it so much. Yeah. Even just to sit and talk to you and fangirl to you about all your amazing things. So when you wrote this book, um, I really liked how you did this and this and like try <laughs> and like, okay, so Ezra is super hot. So um how how did this look? Could you like describe that a little <laughs> more to me? So thank you for that. Appreciate it. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on. Yeah. yeah. Bye. Thanks, you guys. Bye. See you next time. <laughs>